You have encountered 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 10, A Routine Rebuttal. Hey, this is Remy. The title card for this week is Experiential Data, which is a Haas Bioroid upgrade, res cost 2, trash cost 2, with one influence. The ability is all ice protecting this server has plus 2 strength. That's a reboot change. It was originally plus 1. The flavor text, well, the picture shows a Bioroid encountering a an angry individual. And the flavor text says, Floyd felt the anger in the man before him, ranting against simulants. His programming pushed a routine rebuttal to the front of his thoughts, and the urge to speak it was overwhelming. This is only going to make things worse, he thought. I picked this card because in the Astroscript pilot program segment at the end, we'll be reading... A little short story with Floyd as the main character. Now, why does this make Ice stronger, this ability? I don't know. Maybe because he's a Bioroid, and so his, his experiential data helps the Bioroid. But then shouldn't it be Bioroid-only Ice? I don't, I don't know. There's not always a clear connect between the flavor and the ability. Uh, this week's episode... Uh, the large part of it is going to be talking about archetypes, the concept of archetypes. But toward the back end, you, if you're interested and you're following along with my 2.1 group, it's a time for a new data pack. Trace amount is what has been is released, if you will. So we'll be covering the runner cards from trace amount. But right up front, we'll continue with our preview of the Spoilers for the upcoming Mind and Mayhem. Precognition, Mind and Mayhem, Week 3. This week is the Mini Factions, which did not get anything in the first data pack, or the first, sorry, booster pack, Reflections. But each Mini Faction does get one card here, and then we also have an Anarch card. For Apex, the card is Repurpose, an event that costs zero, is one influence. As an additional cost to play Repurpose, trash three installed cards, and then draw seven cards. Sunny gets the card Cloudburst, an event that costs one and is two influence, Search your stack for a Cloud Icebreaker and install it, paying all costs. Attach Cloudburst to it as a condition counter with the text Host Icebreaker has plus one strength. Now, I'm not commenting too much on these cards, but I do have a soft spot for Sunny. She's one of my, my favorite, character, favorite uh, runners to play with. And uh, this is a really good card. It's going to go well help her to get her rig up a little bit faster. And that plus one strength is a nice little bonus too. I mean, I've run stuff like personal touch and uh, self-modifying code and all of that to be able to get those programs out faster. This is one just for her. That's good. And Adam gets Synaptic Remodulator, a unique hardware with a cost of zero and three influence, when you install Synaptic Remodulator, suffer one meat damage. Whenever a successful run ends, gain one credit per click lost or spent during that run. That'll be very useful for him and uh, kind of uh, interesting because it's a, he's a Bioroid, of course. So he's, it's particularly good against HB. That's a nice little flavor insert there. The Anarch card that is spoiled for this past week is Stimgraft, which is unique hardware 
that costs two and is only one influence. Spend hosted credits during runs. Place six power counters on StimGraft when it is installed. Click Make a Run and place one credit on StimGraft for each hosted power counter. When the run ends, suffer one brain damage and remove one power counter and all credits from StimGraft. So, I think the phrasing of the card is kind of awkward, but uh, you have to phrase it in these very specific ways to be able to uh, adhere to all the rules. Basically, what this is doing is giving you a slightly weaker but reusable StimHack. So, StimHack is a card that, from the core set, where you play an event. It's an event where you, you make a run, you get nine credits to spend on that run, and then you suffer a brain damage. Well, here, basically, uh, after you've installed it, you make a run, you get six credits to spend, and then you suffer a brain damage. But the thing is, you can make another run with it, in which you will have five credits to spend, because it's based on the number of power counters you have, and you lose one every time you use it. You can make another run where you have four credits to spend, and so on, which is nice. I mean... The nine credits for StimHack makes it very flexible, but very frequently you don't need that many. I don't know how many times. There's, there's a limit to how many times you're going to want to use this. Uh, I'm guessing the limit is probably five. So, anyway, that's an interesting one. Only one influence if you want to go brain damagey. Anonymous tip. Timing is everything. Now, as far back as episode five, I mentioned that I intend to do a deep dive into the timing in the game, timing windows, the timing structure. And I intend to do that. My target is to have that for next week's episode. But here's a simplified version of that that fits better into the anonymous tip. And it's really just knowing the locations of different res windows for common and basic interactions. Back in episode five, my sure gamble segment was for pad campaign. And I mentioned this then. But with pad campaign, Adonis campaign, Melange Mining Corp, these economy assets were, I guess, a little less true for Melange, but especially for the campaigns. Because you get that money at the beginning of your turn, you can't wait until you take your mandatory draw to res the card because the beginning of your turn has already passed. On the other hand, you don't want to res it on the runner's turn because then you're telling them, hey, come and get this. So interestingly, there is a window of time between the end of the runner's turn and the start of the corpse turn when you can res things. That's when you want to res your economy assets. Here's another example. Ash, or red herrings. Uh, you want to res them as late as you possibly can, right? You don't want to res ash just randomly in the middle of a runner's turn, or red herrings. You want that five credit cost to be a surprise. But you can't wait until after the agenda's been stolen. So, there is a point after the runner passes the last piece of ice protecting the server and has chosen to access the server, that's the point where you want to res these defensive upgrades. Right? So when you're getting in the moment, it's kind of just like, uh, you know, especially if you haven't been using upgrades much, you kind of get into the routine of runner gets in, boom, accesses the card. Well, you need to put the brakes on. Now, that's easier to do online because it gives you a little, like you have to click through all of these permissions to be able to continue the turn. But playing face-to-face, -face, you might just get into a habit of like just running in there and grabbing it. So if you have these defensive upgrades, you got to be like, oh, hold on, I'm going to res this. Here's a runner side example. Most of these are corp, but think about this one. Femme Fatale, the criminal killer, Data Raven, NBNIs, Tollbooth, also NBNIs, all say when the runner encounters the ice. 
something happens. Right In Tollbooth's situation, you have to pay three credits. In Data Raven's situation, you have to decide whether you want to end the run or allow the corp to have a power counter, let them end the run at whim in the future. Uh, there's a little subtle timing interaction with that power counter too. And then Fem lets you bypass the ice. So what order do all of these go off? Well, understanding the timing structure, you realize that whoever's turn it is, they're the ones whose triggers go first. So it goes, we have this when the runner encounters time frame window in the timing structure. The runner gets to go first if it's the runner's turn. So femme fatale triggers before the ice gets a chance to, which means you bypass the ice before or instead of paying the money to toll booth or making the decision about the power counter. That's one of the reasons it's so useful is it can dodge around toll booth. Again, we'll go into much more detail later, hopefully next week, but these are a few common situations in which it's important to get the timing right. Experiential data. Huh, that's also the, the title card. Archetypes. What is an archetype? Well, the dictionary definition from Merriam-Webster is the original pattern or model of which all things of the same type are representations or copies. Another more common term for that is prototype. Well, in gaming, that's, that's not what the word means. The gaming definition is more like a category of deck. Or like there may have been an archetypical, like this deck did this thing, and then we made other decks that were similar to it. They're all kind of similar, so they're all a particular archetype. Uh, I gather the term comes largely from magic. Now, in my opinion, you can read about archetypes online sometimes, and some players have sliced this categorization so thinly that it completely defies the definition. Again, my sense in, in magic is that there are broadly like four different types, different archetypes, different types of decks. You've got aggro and control and, I don't know, I'm not a magic player, a couple others. And that seems reasonable to me. But if you start breaking down archetypes into having like 20 or 30, I, I'm sure a lot of those can be grouped together. So to my mind, an archetype is a broad description of how a deck is trying to win the game that encompasses a variety of different implementations. And so it's really only a useful term if there are just a few different archetypes. Of course, as usual, one thing that sets Netrunner apart is that the two players on either side of the table approach the game very differently. So, of course, you have runner archetypes and you have corp archetypes. The corp archetypes are easier to define Whereas often the runner archetypes are really just shorthand for a deck that exemplifies a certain style or uses a particular package or combo of cards. For example, one of the archetypes that will be coming up, we haven't had these cards, there's all these cards released yet, is Andy Sucker. So Andy is Andromeda, the identity from the fifth pack, and a criminal identity but is using Data Sucker from the Anarchs. And those two together, along with other tools, of course, but those are, are two of the noteworthy cards in the deck. Well, yeah. So really the term archetype works best when describing corpse, because they really are the ones who are driving the structure of the game. As we discussed just last week, right? The, I think so, just the, the three stages, the three phases of the game, right? It's all based around whether the corp is protected and then whether the runner has responded to the corp. Well, I'm going to work through three documents in this segment. One is a thread from Reddit from May of 2016, which is going to be a pretty simple analysis 
of the archetypes. The second is a Google Doc from the big boy uh, that he put together several weeks ago, which is quite a bit less simple. So fair warning on that one. And the third is a reference I'll have for a Google presentation, a slideshow that has been put together. But starting off with the Reddit thread, it was called, What are the Basic Deck Archetypes? And user God-Shaped Bullet has this nice, concise definition. He says, Each corp archetype has a different answer to the question, How do you intend on winning the game? Glacier says, I will make a remote server that is so expensive that the runner cannot afford to do it, or cannot afford to do it often. I will then score agendas in this server and get to seven points. In the meantime, I will also make R&D and HQ costly to run, so the runner can't steal a bunch of agendas while I'm trying to score them. That's Glacier. It's called Glacier because there's so much ice, you see. Fast Advance says, I'm going to mostly skip on the heavily taxing scoring remote and score agendas using cards that allow me to install and score agendas in the same turn. I'll try to make it inconvenient to run R&D and HQ, though. Shell Game, or Never Advance, says, I'm going to make a bunch of remotes. Some of them are bad to run. Some of them are a waste of time. Some of them are agendas. Do you have the time to check them all? If not, I'm going to sneak out agendas and win the game. If you do, remember those remotes I said were bad to run? Kill says, there is a combination of cards in my deck that allow me to end the game immediately with you dead. Sure, run my centrals, run my remotes, steal some agendas. But if you cannot prevent me from killing you, it doesn't matter. But if you spend too much time and resources keeping yourself safe, I'll just score a bunch of agendas and win that way. Rush says, your rig might be able to get through my remotes once you get it going, but I'm going to score out before that happens. I would say that is a nice, broad, high-level concept, conceptual definition of these five corp archetypes. You have Glacier, Fast Advance, Never Advance, or just Shell Game kill, and rush. I mainly want to keep this part of it fairly simple and straightforward, but uh, the user God-Shaped Bullet also said this. You can, of course, combine these strategies. Sometimes really glaciery decks have a kill component, so you can tax the runner's resources and slow them down immensely with the specter of death. Any deck that has the AstroScript pilot program has a fast advance component, even if that's not its main thing. Although I will say, in Reboot, uh, AstroScript is no longer... Well, I mean, it's not exactly a fast advance card anymore. It's more a never advance card now. See, it used to be AstroScript. You had this token when you scored it, this power counter, agenda counter. And then what you could do is on a subsequent turn, install, advance, advance, use your AstroScript agenda counter to give the other advancement for free, score another AstroScript. It was called the AstroTrain. And that doesn't work anymore because now in Reboot, the way AstroScript works is you can't use that counter on a card that you installed this turn. So that turns it into a never advance card. If you are playing never advance, in other words, you lay, you, when you created a, a remote server, you never advance it. Now, AstroScript can be used to score actually a, a four-pointer from a never-advanced state. 
which is still very useful, but not quite as broken because the runner can access it. Uh, one other quick comment, because that was mostly about corpse, just a quick comment about runners from user Jardment Dweller. I think runners tend to have less archetypes per se, but tend to involve specific answers to two questions. How do you make money? And how do you run? Basically, what is your econ engine? And what is your breaker suite, or your way of dealing with ice? Perhaps that's enough information for you. And if so, please feel free to jump ahead to the next segment. But if you want a little more, or a slightly different perspective, here is what the big boy has to say about archetypes. This document, and I'll link to it in the show notes, was written with the full card pool in mind. It's fairly dense, which is to say it has a lot of information packed into a little amount of space. It also contains links to a couple of small spreadsheets that analyze the pre-constructed decks for Reboot, which is a set of 25 specifically constructed good tier one, if you will, decks. Uh, so I'm going to edit and streamline for my purposes here. Just know that if you want to see more information, like uh, comparisons and situations where a particular thing is useful, follow the link from the show notes. Once again, we'll start with Corp. Big Boy starts right off the top by mixing things up. <laughs> he says, every Corp is a mix of three things. Method or methods of scoring. Economy strategy. Speed. So the scoring methods he identifies, there are six. Fast advance, using cars like Biotic Labor, San San City Grid. Never advance, which is particularly useful once there are enough 3-2 agendas. Upgrades, that is defensive upgrades like red herrings and ash that make it expensive to steal an agenda. Tag trace pressure, using sea source alongside tag punishment like scorched earth to punish the runner when they contest your scoring server without enough leftover credits. Net damage kill pressure. Make the runner wary of running your scoring server due to the amount of net damage your deck deals. Put them in situations where they need to let you score because one wrong guess means flatline. In the long run, potentially run their deck out of cards entirely. And Caprice Nisei, which I'm not going to bother talking about. That's a card from the end of the second cycle. So we're pretty far away from that one. So once again, the six scoring methods are fast advance, never advance, defensive upgrades, Caprice Nisei, which is a particular kind of defensive upgrade, tag trace pressure, and net damage kill pressure. The second thing is the economy strategy. And so the economy strategies he identifies are operations, protected assets, like Adonis campaign that you want to have with some ice in front of it, and, and you can use to uh, turn into a scoring server later, and naked assets, like pad campaign, which is a higher trash cost, and you can leave with one light ice or none at all. And then the third aspect is speed, and he identifies three speeds, rush, glacier, and mid-range. Rush is threaten scores very early. Use gear check ice to keep the runner at bay while you sprint to the finish line. Gear check here means an ice that says, if you don't have the right icebreaker, you can't get in. Go back and try again. Ice wall is the classic example. So use gear check ice to keep the runner at bay while you sprint to the finish line. Glacier, defend until all of your servers are incredibly secure, then score out as a formality. And so you, you can identify the rush is an early game strategy. The glacier is a late game strategy. And then mid-range is 
in between the two. Defend centrals from initial runner aggression and then start scoring in the mid-game window where they need to build their rig and their early game economy is run out. So you have these three mix of three things, six different scoring methods, three economy strategies, and three speeds. And when you combine them, you end up with the different archetype configurations. Note that this analysis is a mix of what that Reddit thread, the more basic concept, had to say because uh, he split those different, those five different archetypes across these three different axes, these three different groups. So that's the corpse side. For runners, it goes into a lot more detail. So I debated about whether I wanted to include this at all because it is not simple and it is not straightforward. And in a way, it doesn't really align with what I had to say at the beginning of this segment about archetypes. Like my concept is that an archetype is here is your broad type of deck. That's how I've always been thinking of it. But what the big boy is trying to do is think about things in terms of, uh, you know, assembling a combination of things to formulate your deck. So like, for example, in that last section, you would take one of each of these three, you know, you're, you'd take one from each category, and then you've assembled your, your different type of deck, which leads to obviously a lot of different, theoretically, different archetypes. If you want to say that you have a fast advance, uh, naked asset rush deck, theoretically, that's going to be different from a fast advance, naked asset glacier deck. I'm not saying that such a thing necessarily exists, but you can see you can combine these different options in multiple ways to have, I don't know, I don't know the math for it, a couple dozen different options. Well, if, if that was adding complexity to my basic definition of archetype, he kind of outdoes himself when he comes to the runner side. So I am going to go through it. Um, and I'll try to keep it as straightforward and simple as possible. But once again, if you want more detail on this, the thing to do is take a look at the doc. He says, runner decks have many aspects. I have broken them down into 11 here. They commit resources in deck construction to each of these based on what the corpse they expect to face are demanding of them. Now, in the doc he goes into more detail than I'm going to here. He includes additional example cards that are not present in the 2.1 card pool thus far. And he also provides details about which corp strategies each of these particular aspects is good at. That's all very useful information, but again, it's, it's more detailed than I think is necessary for me right now. Maybe I'll come back and revisit this in the future. There's also an accompanying spreadsheet in which he examines each of the pre-constructed decks. There's one like this for the corp too. But at the runner side, he takes each of these 11 categories and assigns them a number on, on to what degree this particular deck is doing this particular thing and assigns the number from zero, meaning non-existent, to four, meaning immense. That said, here are the 11 aspects. Early economic pressure. And these are pressure cards that cripple the corpse economy if they do not properly defend themselves, like account siphon or parasite. Early access pressure, where you're trying to steal agendas early from central servers, like with Gabe, Desperado, Data Sucker, Sneak Door Beta. Economic speed. Make money quickly in the early to mid-game. With Desperado. Stimhack, even. Remote busting. Get through early gear checks on remote servers to stop early scores or thwart the cheap establishment of protected economy assets. So cards that apply here include Inside Job, Special Order, Stimhack. Asset Contesting. 
trash assets without crippling your own economy. Once again, we see Desperado, Wizard, Imp, Magnum Opus. These are all cards that help you do that. Rig Assembly. Quickly assemble a serviceable rig that can get into mid-range remotes at a reasonable cost. Special Order, Femme Fatale, Diesel, Wildside. R&D Locking. Stop the corp from seeing agendas off the top of R&D by accessing most or all of the cards before the corp can draw them. Medium is the primary way here, although the maker's eye, with a little bit of deja vu to keep recurring it, can also work. HQ Sweeping. Snatch agendas from HQ in the mid to late game. Uh, Currently nothing in the card pool that really allows you to do that. The cards he references are all coming later. Because you want to access more than one, is the point. Disruption. Trash cards that cannot normally be trashed. Or disrupt the corpse plan in unpredictable ways. Cards like Noise, Imp, Demolition Run. That's an Anarch theme. Control. Create a board state where the corpse scoring server is useless and keep it that way as long as possible, either through economic denial, ice destruction, or a super-efficient rig. Vamp. Parasite. That one seems the most broad of all of them, I gotta say. Inevitability. Reach for the final few points in the late game after running out of gas, or never run out of gas in the first place. Noise, going after archives. Notoriety, coming up in a minute. The Maker's Eye. Magnum Opus, never run out of gas. So there are your 11 different aspects, and you see they, they approach different times of the game and different parts of the corp. Right, so you have your early economic pressure, your early access pressure, economic speed to make money early. You have the way you're interacting with remotes, remote busting to get through early servers, asset contesting to go after assets even into the mid-game. Rig assembly is putting your own rig together, but relatively early, whereas inevitability might be putting your own rig together, but later. R&D lock is locking down R&D. HQ sweeping is more or less locking down HQ. And then you have disruption and control. Again, it's a lot. And so runner decks are going to, according to the big boy, they're going to operate on various elements of this spectrum. Uh, what I can try to do, I can't guarantee that I can do this because I don't think I have the necessarily the skill to do it. What I can try to do is as I present decks in the future, analyze where are they? What are they doing in these different areas? And why that's useful is then you, it helps you to be able to take a deck list and be like, okay, what is this deck list trying to do? And then that informs the way you play the cards. You pilot the deck. Uh, finally, I wanted to touch on this brief, sort of a historical presentation, which is particularly useful for this podcast and this game group 2.1, because we are taking a historical approach to the game. It's called the Android Netrunner ANR History of archetypes. And what it is, is a presentation, like a PowerPoint presentation, except it's Google presentation, that's an overview of which deck types were strong as different sets came out. So it starts with the core set. It's like, here are examples of, I think it gives four, two for each side, of powerful decks during this time. And then it provides sample deck lists, too, linking out to Netrunner DB or BoardGameGeek or wherever they may be hosted. And then the cycles are taken as a whole rather than pack by pack. So after the core set, it's like, here's 
what would things look like after the Genesis cycle was done. And then after creation and control, the first deluxe expansion, and so on. And as the, the cycles go on, I found that there are more, there's more detail, there are more options, there are more types of strong decks. And this document that I'm going to link to takes you all the way through Data and Destiny, which is the end of Fantasy Flight's run, but beyond the scope of the reboot project. However, it links to another version that's almost twice as long at this point that also goes into even more detail for the years of Null Signals uh, project. So that's a nice resource. If that's something you want to take a look at, get some ideas for different decks. That was archetypes. Look at it the way you want. You can look at it the simple way where you have the, like the five basic corp, corp archetypes and then the two basic runner questions that we talked about early in the segment just as a review, just to keep it all concise here, the five basic corp archetypes are Glacier, Fast Advance, Shell Game, Rush, and Kill. And the two basic runner questions are, how do you make money? How do you run? Or you can take the big boys approach, drill down into more detail, and, uh, and run with that. Whichever way is more effective for you. Lemuria Codecracker, now known as Satellite Uplink, because that's a much cooler name than Lemuria Codecracker. Uh, this is going to be looking at the new cards that are coming into the 2.1 group. The second data pack is Trace Amount. It was released January 9th, 2013, about four months after the core set came out. According to the release article on Fantasy Flight's website for the game, quote, the game's seven factions gain new means to run traces, avoid traces, expose ice, and establish links, unquote. For runners, everybody gets two except criminal, gets three. For corpse, everybody gets two cards except Jinteki, gets four. Of the 20 cards in the data pack, 13 of them have been adjusted for reboot, five of the eight runner cards, eight of the 12 corp cards, about the same percentage for each. Here, we're just going to focus on the runner side. First, the one nerf in Anarch is Vamp, a run event in which you run on HQ, pay however many credits you want, the corp will lose the same number, then you take a tag. So kind of like a Count Siphon, but not as strong. The cost for this run event has gone from zero to two. That's a big change. Two. As for the buffs, the four cards that are improved are both criminal cards, Satellite Uplink, the new namesake of this segment, a two-cost event lets you expose now three cards instead of just two. And Compromised Employee, a resource that gives you a recurring credit for traces and you get to gain a credit anytime the corp reses ice. The install cost is dropped from two to one. One of the shaper cards gets buffed, Snowball, a one memory unit fracture. Its install cost is dropped from four to three. It is strength one, and it's a one for one deal. One credit to break a barrier subroutine, one credit to boost one strength, with this added wrinkle that whenever you use it to break a subroutine, it has plus one strength for the remainder of the run. And the neutral card in the set, Dyson Memchip, a piece of hardware that gives you one memory unit and one link, has its install cost reduced from three to two. The three cards that are unchanged are the other Anarch card, Liberated Account, a resource with an install cost of six, you put 16 credits on it when you install it, but for one click, you can take four. The other criminal card, E3 Feedback Implants, a hardware with an install cost of two. Whenever you break a subroutine, pay one credit to break a subroutine, in case you have an expensive breaker. 
and Shaper's Notoriety, a one-cost event where if you successfully run on each of the three centrals in a turn, you can play Notoriety to give yourself an agenda point. Going right into Matrix Analyzer, here is what the big boy had to say about Vamp and why it was nerfed. This card was always a little bit overpowered, but was pushed out of the meta by Astro decks. Now that the Astro train is gone, Vamp needs a nerf, and this cost increase makes it approximately one turn slower to land. So Astro train I already talked about in the archetype segment, but it's the idea where you used to be able to play AstroScript Pilot Program, which gives you an agenda counter to advance something for free, like it doesn't cost you a click or a credit. And so you could just chain these together, and it was almost unstoppable. So with Vamp, a very strong card to take the money from the corp was very useful. Well, now that that strong tool is gone for the corp, as the big boy has said previously, Anarch tends to benefit more, their cards tend to benefit more from the corp getting a little weaker in places. So this card is made a little weaker. I'm going to talk briefly about three of the buffs myself. Satellite Uplink that lets you expose three cards instead of two. It's interesting that reading through the old threads on BoardGameGeek from the game's original release, it was perceived as very important to core set players that expose, like you had to have expose in your deck. But my sense has always been from later in the run, from a few years in, that higher skill level players did not view it the same way. That you use kind of, you, you got expose is necessary when you're perhaps less skilled or just less aware of what's in the pool or what, how people play. But, but good play does, kind of negates in many cases the value of expose. So here you go. Expose three cards instead of two. It's worth noting, read the reboot pool to reinforce this. There are only 12 cards in the entire reboot pool that have expose effects, and five of these are in the core set or the first cycle. Dyson Memchip, the neutral hardware that is reduced in cost from three to two, gives you a memory unit and a link. So it's combining these two things. Now, previously, if you don't count consoles, your options for these are uh, Akamatsu Memchip, a one-cost shaper hardware that gives you the MU, access to GlobalSec, a neutral resource that costs one to give you the link, and you could combine these together. Or you could import the helpful AI from Shaper, also a resource that has had its cost reduced from two to one that also gives you a link and its ability to trash for uh, boosting a breaker. And then the other place you could get Link, of course, is Rabbit Hole, the Shaper hardware, with its cost of two. So maybe the logic was that gaining a slot in your deck by taking an influence-free memory unit in Dyson Memchip and combining it with a neutral Link was deemed worthy paying an extra credit for. Right, so normally you would have Akamatsu Memchip, which you'd have to import for anybody else, for your memory, and access to GlobalSec if you also wanted Link. That's two cards. It would have been two cost to install them both, two clicks to install them both. But here, if you combine them into one card, you pay three, but then only one deck slot and only one click to install them. Maybe that's the balancing they used. Uh, but in practice... It's a little too expensive, and so it's not really worth that extra credit cost. And to me, it appeals that a link costs a credit, an MU costs a credit, so if you have one of each, it costs two. That makes sense to me. Now for Snowball, let's talk math. Snowball is now the fifth Fractor in the game, after Corroder and Morningstar in Anarch, Aurora in Criminal, and Battering Ram in Shaper. And so the Corroder, of course, is the best in class. Battering Ram is the other one in Shaper. Let's compare these three. Corroder is a one-in-one. That is uh, one to break a subroutine, one to boost strength, as is Snowball. 
But Corroder costs two and has a strength of two, whereas Snowball costs three and has a strength of one, plus this other weird little ability. Meanwhile, Battering Ram is, is a two credits to break two subroutines, but then the same one credit to boost, although it retains its strength. It's a cost three and a strength three. So, I mean, Battering Ram sounds better because it has a higher strength. You can keep, it can keep its strength, but how useful is that really going to be? Well, let's look at breaking one ice of, of a few different types. First, the very common ice wall. Corroder breaks for one. Snowball breaks for one. Battering Ram breaks for two because you always have to pay two with Battering Ram. So Corroder and Snowball the same, but remember, you paid one more to install Snowball. Wall of Static, Corroder breaks for two. Snowball breaks for three because its strength is lower. And Battering Ram also only breaks for two because it uh, is, doesn't have to boost its strength, whereas Corroder does. Let's look at a couple of big ones. Hadrian's Wall is good for Battering Ram because it costs Corroder 7, Snowball 8, but Battering Ram only, I mean, only 6 because there's only two subroutines. Whereas Heimdall is the same 7 for Corroder and 8 for Snowball, but it's also 7 for Battering Ram because it has to pay twice for breaking. So you can see there's not a lot of difference, right, in the expenses here. Obviously, Battering Ram and Snowball both cost one more to install, but if you're going to be breaking a lot of barriers, right, so you can get it installed fairly early, well, uh, that's, that's going to help to offset that cost. But then they're also many times costing an extra strength to break. Um, especially on small eyes for battering ram. But then again, if you're breaking Hadrian's Wall, the difference between 7 and 8 is probably not that big. But if you're breaking Wall of Static, the difference between 2 and 3 is, yes, it's one credit either way, but proportionally it's a bigger, bigger difference. You would imagine that there's an early game Wall of Static that was put up. And then later in the game, a Hadrian's Wall was put in that same server. Well, so for Hadrian's Wall, it's that same cost to break, seven for Corroder, eight for Snowball, six for Battering Ram. But then Battering Ram is going to carry its full strength forward to Wall of Static, which doesn't matter because Wall of Static is only a strength of three, so Battering Ram doesn't need that strength. Battering Ram only really needs that strength if there are basically two big barriers in a row. But Snowball, in that same situation, where after it breaks Hadrian's Wall for eight, will carry forward plus two strength. Not its full strength, but one's extra strength for each subroutine it's broken. So now Snowball is a strength three, which means that Wall of Static, whereas Corroder and Battering Ram are still breaking it for only for two. Now it's only going to cost Snowball one because it doesn't have to boost strength. So typically it's only one additional cost to break after you pay one more to install it. That's as good as Corroder if the court places two barriers in the same server and better if they pay place three, but how often are they going to do that? So, I don't know if I have a final conclusion. Corroder is still the best. I guess that's the final conclusion. But Snowball is another in-faction option for Shaper that isn't the kind of overpowering battering ram. Enigma. Taking a look at the flavor in the game. In Trace Amount... There are actually three different cards, well, four different cards, uh, that have references to future cards, to future or mainly to future characters. For example, Snowball 
has a quote from chaos theory in it. Chaos theory doesn't come along until the next pack. A satellite uplink has the image of Leela. It talks about what Leela is doing up there in space, trying to hack in. She doesn't come along until the third cycle, and then near the end of it in pack five. Whereas notoriety has the image of smoke. Um, it doesn't say that's who it is, but that's who it is. Uh, she previously made quotes in the corset on the maker's eye and wall of static. Smoke doesn't come along until the sixth cycle, pack three, which actually is outside the scope of reboot. I was trying to look her up on Reteki. Like, why isn't smoke coming up? Oh, because she didn't come along until later than I realized. And as an aside, E3 feedback implants, in the flavor text, it says it's made by a company called Cyber Solutions. And Cyber Solutions will provide a mem chip uh, toward the end of the second cycle. So I just wanted to highlight these different ways in which they're interleaving the lore of the game, if you will, the flavor text, and sort of seeding information for the future. Many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. Music is provided by Alexi Action. The website for the show is netrunner2.1.com. That'll take you to the right to the Reboot Project homepage. Even if I do eventually get a website put up, I'll make sure there's a link to the Reboot Project homepage on the right at the top. You can play online at reteki.fun. Go to the Reboot Discord server or contact me on Discord or BoardGameGeek or Reddit. My name is Alberman. There's also a BGG thread for the podcast and group. And my email address is anreboot2.1 at gmail.com. The AstroScript pilot program this time is a short story about Floyd 2X3A7C, who we heard from in experiential data. He is a bioroid that works with the New Angeles Police Department. And so we will have that story read for you. Thanks for listening. See you next week. The crime scene was chaotic. A riot of blood, street trash, and bodies. Floyd 2X3A7C's sensor suite swept the scene, parsing all at once the individual blood spatter patterns, the cooling IR traces drifting from the corpses, and the distinct chemical formula of human sweat, urine, and pheromones that combined to spell fear and death. His quantum computer instantly tracked the disparate sources and cross-referenced them with the central database back at NAPD headquarters. Three victims, two male and one female, various races. Ages vary from late teens to mid-thirties. Preliminary examination suggests Blunt force trauma as cause of death. Low-spec vidcam mounted on wall, broken. No debris in vicinity suggests it was broken prior to the events under investigation. Witnesses unlikely, given neighborhood. Check with attending officers for confirmation. A Floyd! Floyd shifted a portion of his processing power, bringing the source of the voice into focus. Detective Mateo Jimenez, New Angeles Police Department. Homicide Division, two years. Patrol Officer, four years prior. Adequate arrest and case closure record. No disciplinary charges or internal investigations. A good cop by human standards. Elevated heart rate. Nervous disposition. He is uncomfortable with my presence. Likely uncomfortable around all bioroids. Add to personnel files. Four spec is still 30 minutes away, but I figure now that you're here, we could do a prelim. What do you think? It would be my pleasure, Detective Jimenez, said Floyd, stepping through the blinking, yellow, hollow crime scene barrier. He approached the nearest body, 
which was splayed out on the ground with its limbs twisted into unnatural angles. This man must have died in great pain. Floyd stepped carefully around the blood pool as his sensor suite picked out the low-velocity impact spatter and cast-off patterns around the body. Floyd initiated a reconstruction subroutine, instantly forming a picture of the impact points from the blood spatter. All signs pointed to a single assailant. Victim is Robert Wong, employed by Guangzhou as a sales associate, showroom address on file. Numerous arrests, assault, possession with intent to supply, destruction of property. Destruction of property was the charge given to any attack against an android. A reminder that bioroids and clones are, at best, legally property. Floyd ran the name against the NAPD database of known human-first activists and found a match in seconds. Floyd's sensors had already pinpointed the location of several small pieces of bioroid chassis, and a moderate amount of bright blue coolant had pooled near the location where Floyd believed the altercation had begun. Worryingly, the coolant lacked any of the normal radioactive tracing agent used by HB to identify its bioroids. During the three or four seconds that passed while Floyd considered the possibilities, Jimenez's eyes didn't leave his. Something wrong, Floyd? he asked. Have either you or any of the attending officers removed anything from the scene, detective? Jimenez made a face. Oh, of course not, Floyd. We're not yellow jacket amateurs. No one's even crossed the perimeter except you and me. Why? What makes you think something's missing? There is evidence to suggest a bioroid was damaged here, possibly even destroyed here. Perhaps you or your men removed the remains in an effort to spare my feelings. I assure you, no such effort is necessary. Detective Jimenez scowled. No, there was no bioroid here when we secured the scene, and even if there had been, I wouldn't be so stupid as to contaminate an active crime scene because I thought a golem might have feelings. Give me some credit, Floyd. I apologize, Detective. Floyd crossed the crime scene and knelt beside a sledgehammer that lay in the middle of the alley. Preliminary analysis suggests this is the murder weapon. Although a more thorough test would be required for confirmation, my software shows all three victims' blood on the hammerhead. Furthermore, the spatter, wounds, and placement of the bodies indicates a struggle with a single assailant. Jimenez gave a low whistle. You're saying one guy did all this? One guy takes out three human-first pendejos with their own sledgehammer? These guys aren't exactly noted for their pleasant demeanors and willingness to lie down in a fight. Floyd crossed the crime scene to stand next to a particularly pronounced splash of blood. The assailant was clearly heavily augmented, he said. Most likely he possessed one or more cybernetic limbs, boosted reflexes, and subdermal armor. Although I cannot be certain at this juncture, the evidence suggests all the blood at the scene comes from the two dead males and one female. What about the bioroid parts? Could a golem have done this? asked Jimenez. Floyd looked at him. The first directive prohibits a bioroid from harming a human. That protocol overrides all other subroutines, including those for self-defense or carrying out instructions. This is most likely the work of an augmented human. Floyd's sensors had scanned the blood pool again during the exchange. Something contradicted his theory, and now a lingering doubt was worming its way into his logic processes. Fine, fine, said Jimenez. So, three 
human first members pick a fight with a Borg, who proceeds to beat them to death with their sledgehammer, all the while not taking even a single hit. In the center of the blood pool lay a piece of twisted plastic. Floyd recognized it immediately as part of a bioroid torso, a support strut found between the shoulder and base of the neck, to be precise, equivalent to a human collarbone. Floyd, is that what happened? Floyd. The plastic lay on top of the blood. Other than a little splashback, the piece was clean, which meant it must have fallen onto the blood pool. An unexpected subroutine blossomed in Floyd's mind, and he was immediately connected to Director Haas's private terminal. Floyd, are you even listening to me? Are you saying this was a cyborg or not? Floyd turned to look at Detective Jimenez. I apologize, Detective. I am unable to adequately process your query.